Welcome to the 3M Inside Angle podcast. This is your host, Gordon Moore. And today I'm talking with Dr. Paul Gordon, who is a tenured professor of family and community medicine at the University of Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Gordon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The reason I thought it would be fun to have a chat with you today is that I had an opportunity to hear you on a panel at the University of Rochester Family Medicine 50th reunion of the Family Medicine Residency. And you talked about a cycling trip across the country where you were interviewing people around health policy and things that were interesting and, and meaningful to you. And that just captured my attention. I thought that was fascinating because I, I like health policy. I think it's cool stuff. And so I'd love to hear how this came about. Where did the idea come from? Very nice opening question. Um, a little bit of a story, of course. I think I first considered or planned to bicycle across the United States back in the bicentennial, 1976, and I was unable to. And for the next 40 years, I just kept saying, I really need to do that. I really need to do that. So my wife, children, and I were in the backcountry in the Grand Canyon doing some backpacking, and once again, I just said the same thing. You know, I really should just bicycle across the country. And the family, in their wonderful means, just said, shut up and do it already. <laughs> I said, oh, what a fascinating idea. Just do it. So I said, okay. And then I realized that one of the very special benefits of being tenured is the opportunity to take a sabbatical. And as I'm sure you know, family docs aren't the classic folks to get sabbaticals. We don't spend time necessarily in research labs across the country and the like. And I think that the research lab for family medicine is people. We talk to people. We listen to people. We understand things related to that. So as I began to think, I'm due for a sabbatical, and a topic that's of interest to me is healthcare policy. At the time, this was the planning was in 2015, the trip was in 2016, and certainly we had heard more than enough about how much people hated the Affordable Care Act. And indeed, there had been quite a lot written about people's distaste for the ACA. Yet it was all based on surveys. And I thought, maybe I could add to that body of knowledge through conversation. I then said, what better opportunity than my sabbatical? I'm going to ride my bike across the country and listen to people about the Affordable Care Act. And I use the word listen very specifically because, indeed, I called this the bike listening tour. And I made, as part of my research, uh, methodology that I would only listen, I would not correct, I would just acknowledge, but never tell someone that what they said is wrong. And as I'm sure you could imagine, there was lots of misinformation. I feel very confident that having kept my mouth shut, as we family docs are capable of doing, I had enormous amounts of information shared with me. And that was clearly the key to the success of this trip. I'm always impressed by the degree to which a, a comment or you know, jumping in the middle can shut down the natural flow of conversations. You know, I'm thinking about what a challenge that is uh, as you traveled across the country in a listening tour. How, how in the world did you do that? I mean, how, 
how did you come up with the idea that this was going to be useful? I considered it to be useful because I think that survey data is important, but more detailed conversations with people enrich the dialogue, enrich the, the content that we own in such an enormous way. So that's how I came about with the listening tour idea. Um, I think you asked how I did it. So what I would literally do is I created a jersey. I realized that one of my uh, first cousins was a graphic designer, and I asked her for some help. So I put together a jersey concept. She turned it into a formal um, graphic. We sent it to a bicycle jersey company, and I got these jerseys made that said bike listening tour. It had a graphic of the country with the line across my biking. So I would walk into a, a cafe, a gas station, a little place where people were hanging around. I'd walk up, introduce myself. Hi, my name is Paul Gordon. I'm riding my bike across the country, and I would point to my jersey. As you can see, I want to know what you think about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Said, talk to me about Obamacare. Many times people would say, no, 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 you don't really care what I have to think. I said, absolutely I do. Well, what do you think they'd say? I said, no, 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 this isn't about me. I know what I think. I want to know what you think. And we'd have a little bit of this back and forth for a while. A couple people thought that the president was actually paying me to ride across the country to change people's opinions. And once I reassured them that none of those things were actually correct, that all I wanted to do was hear them, they opened up. And they opened up in a very big and candid way. And I had over 125 conversations between Washington, D.C. and Seattle, Washington, which were just fascinating and wonderful. And so this was just, you would you'd stop somewhere for lunch or whatever, and you'd run into somebody and say, hey, and that, that's how you met folks? Absolutely. And the interesting thing, of course, is that as I was planning for this trip, my wife, who had a real job, you know, she actually had to see patients, so she was only able to come with me for one week. She didn't have the luxury of taking three months off of a sabbatical. But she said to me, she says, Paul, you don't talk to people. How are you going to be able to do this? You're way too shy. There's no way you're going to do this. And quite honestly, I don't know how it happened. I got into a rhythm. I got into this place where I felt perfectly comfortable walking up and saying, hi, my name is Paul. Talk to me. Tell me about Obamacare. And it just really worked. It was amazing. It was also some of the three best months of my life. It was, it was unusual. So tell me something about what you heard. As I mentioned, we have conversations ranging from 10 to maybe 30 or 40 minutes. I kept notes kind of extemporaneous field notes. After each encounter, I would make a dictation to my cell phone. And then every evening, listening to the cell phone, I would write up. And then I kind of did it on a blog site on WordPress. And then I kept a formal copy of each of those write-ups and went through those write-ups in a more qualitative research method to identify 
themes and codes. And I came up essentially with four major themes. They included people felt that the ACA had increased the cost of health insurance. They felt that the government shouldn't tell people what to do. They felt that the responsibility for all of the ACA problems was rather diffuse, of course, blaming Congress and many, many people blamed the president. And the last theme, which actually was the one that I think surprised me the most, the first three were really not a surprise. I was anticipating those things, was that the ACA shouldn't pay for other people's problems. So for instance, I met a barkeep in Western Pennsylvania, a woman probably in her 50s. She said, why should my money go to pay for someone else's pregnancy? And I kept a straight face thinking she had just in the previous conversation, told me about her children and how proud she was. And I was thinking, hmm, you were pregnant one time. <laughs> and who paid for your health care? The idea of the shared responsibility of health insurance. But anyway, that really struck me. There was a lot of otherism and there was a lot of, I just don't want my money to help anyone else. And that was probably the theme that, that was the most troubling for me. You, you touched on something, you know, as a, as a relatively obvious thing, which is the, the, the essence of insurance and how that works. But I kind of wonder if over time, you know, possibly even those listening to this podcast might have forgotten about that. <laughs> so uh, just you give me a thumbnail sketch of uh, your thoughts on that. So again, and that certainly points me to the future as I am working toward a Medicare for all approach, but the point being that as with any insurance, we spread the risk. So we are all obligated to purchase car insurance, whether we want it or not, pretty much, it's the law. And the fact that I'm a crappy driver, but you're actually a very safe driver, allows my premium to be a little lower than it would have been had I been the only one insured. So similarly with health, if we can spread the risk across the largest number of people, then we can keep the premium down. And I would have an opportunity at times to say I, I'm faculty at the University of Arizona. I don't know how many employees we have, but I'm sure it's over 10,000. And the fact that the health insurance premiums are spread over 10,000 people as opposed to just 10 or 20 allowed me to have some pretty serious heart surgery, which I think was in excess of a quarter of a million dollars, be covered. And my premium doesn't change, even though I obviously had disease. So uh, that to me is, I think that was the question you were asking. What I think it gets for me is this concept of the greater good for a community, a society, in that, you know, if, if we pay, if we all collectively pay in and I pay a little bit more than I necessarily need, it could benefit another person, but that's a, it's a net good. You get to keep teaching at the University of Arizona, and that's a good thing, generating, you know, uh, physicians who are going to go out there and practice, which does a good thing for our community. T for me to say, well, you know, I'm living healthy. I, I you know, I, I'm not like Dr. Gordon. He left, you know, terrible lifestyle, and he, <laughs> so he should take care of his own costs. You know, that's, that's, you know, because I, I, I kind of have that sense in that, in a, that our country has sort of drifted a little bit into that 
you know, I'm kind of looking out for number one here, which is me and, you know, the heck with everybody else. With In that sense, it's ungluing our society and that may not be in our own best interest, even though, you know, I may be paying a little extra to cover your heart surgery. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point you brought up about shared responsibility, which I'm afraid has eroded in this country. And in the end of one of the manuscripts I wrote, I talked about Germany, where their health minister at that time, Ulla Schmidt, um, had the concept of social solidarity, that everyone in Germany should have guaranteed access to state-of-the-art medical care and contribute to the financing. So that was the idea of shared responsibility. And I think since insurance in general covers the unexpected, you don't plan to have a problem, then we do have to see it, I believe, as a sense of shared responsibility to be able to take care of each other. Yes, very similar, I think, to the the concept of the greater good of having an educated workforce. An educated workforce means that you know, our nation can be preeminent in the world potentially on you know devising new software, making cool new things that help benefit people. You know, obviously we do some other stuff too, but there's that fact that I'm paying taxes on education, but it's benefiting me in the long run because now I have the internet, which I didn't figure out, but somebody else did because they had a good education too. So that that's a cool thing. So you you ran across the country, you interviewed a lot of people, you were asking all these questions. What did you do with that information? One tiny correction, I actually didn't ask a lot of questions. I pretty much asked, talk to me about Obamacare. And I... <laughs> okay, so you asked the same question a lot of times. <laughs> yes, yes, because I didn't have a script of 10 questions that I had to get through. And I think that made the conversation essentially easier and it allowed it to flow. I didn't have to keep looking at my little pad to say, oh, I got to get to question three. I better hurry up and get to question four and the like. It was really an unstructured interview conversation. So that really made a difference. Regarding what I did, as I mentioned, I spent each evening writing up the encounters we had that day. And one of my students, Laurel Gray, who's now a pediatric intern at Salt Lake City, she came on this trip with me, as did some others, but she came as part of her summer research project between years one and two of medical school. And she had a good background in anthropologic and qualitative research. So she really helped in this idea we had mentioned before about uh, identifying themes and codes for all of the 125 interviews, and then we wrote them up in manuscripts. So we got uh, three things published at the time, and just recently, David Sklar from Academic Medicine asked me to write a reflection on the 2018 election based on our trip. So there was, as far as an academic, it was one of the most productive periods of my life, having three or four manuscripts over three months. So one of the manuscripts was called Opposition to Obamacare, A Closer Look, and that was really the biggest manuscript. That was a pretty nice piece in uh, academic medicine uh, back in September of 2017. Then I had written a piece that got published much earlier in October of 16. The editor had asked that I try to write something about what 
can physicians do regarding healthcare policy? So I wrote a short commentary about that. And then I wrote what was really a lot of fun for me, a uh, reflective narrative essay about bicycling through American heartland. And that was in the journal of the American Board of Family Practice. Very nice. Having gone through all that, is it the kind of thing you would ever do again? Oh, absolutely. And if I could just back up one second, there was not uniform anticipation of success. So not everyone that I worked with here in Arizona anticipated that it would result in actual uh, publications and the like. So it surprised a few people, <laughs> which was great for me because I knew it's a sabbatical and I have to I have to share the knowledge that I gain. And it wasn't in someone's basic science research lab. It was in our family docs research lab called the country at large. And I was just very excited to be able to have produced those writings and to get them published in really good journals. Um, would I ever do it again? Uh, absolutely. And I'm planning to do it again in the summer of 2020. We're going to oh go my goodness. cover some of the same route. We're going to go through Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Many of the places that we remember from 2016 voted for now President Trump. And I'm anticipating there will continue to be some misunderstanding or the like about health care. And this time, the conversations are going to be focused around health care policy. Tell me what you understand of Medicare for all. What is a Medicare for all light? What is a public option? What is the market-based approach? What is socialism? What is the Canadian approach? And this trip I'm in the current planning stage is going to be a little different in that I think I will like to take the next step from just listening to try to understand where those things come from and how those values around healthcare would translate into their anticipated vote in the 2020 election. And to the extent that I find that there's a mismatch between their hopes for universal coverage and the ability of their children to remain on their policy and keep premiums down and all of that stuff, yet they plan to vote in ways for politicians that have in no way shared those values. I'm going to try to explore where does that come from and see if I can understand that. Is your intent to change their the way they're thinking about voting or you know, is it an intervention or is it just like listening for that next layer of where to come from? I am... Um, hoping it will only be a listening. I'm not a politician. I am not running for office, nor am I campaigning for anyone else who's running for office. I'm hoping that at the end of the discussion, people can just understand what I talked about. So my wife and I, she does a lot of reading about this as well, and she's actually going to come on the next trip. She and I wrote an op-ed piece in our local newspaper about myths about Medicare for all. And what came about is that we just try to clarify some of the myths that are out there. 
people that I work with look at the local newspaper and say, hey, that was a great piece. And even people I know don't agree with me at least acknowledge some greater understanding of what we wrote about. And if I could accomplish that same thing, I'd be perfectly happy. How long do you think this trip will take? It will only take as long as I have off between sessions. So school ends (laughs) May 16th, and school begins about the third week in July. So I'm planning to finish up the research part in early July, and then hopefully the last week and a half, my wife and I will just take a vacation and either go over the Rockies in Montana or over the Cascades in Washington State. Wow, all depending on how fast you're making tracks. Yeah, no, well, actually, we're going to finish the research at the beginning of July in Fargo, North Dakota. The town was picked for two reasons. One, I anticipate it will have bus stations and airports. Second, we like the town, the movie Fargo. And just before we get to Fargo, we're going to be going through Bemidji, which, as you probably know, was the site of the TV version of Fargo. So anyway, that's a dumb little <laughs> side twist. But we're going to get to Fargo, and then from Fargo, we'll grab a bus to get to Montana or to Spokane, Washington, and finish the last part of the trip. So not as many miles this trip. I'll tell you that part of what I, I find fascinating about all this is one of the, the questions that occurs to me a lot is the understanding of healthcare policy at a federal or state level and how that impacts a person's life. You know, one of the things that keeps coming to my mind is the framework for understanding quality in healthcare and how micromanaging and granular it gets when it says you doctor need to test a person with diabetes with X, Y, and Z and achieve these things. And then to support that, the medical record companies are embedding all these pull-down menus. And now I, I hear from our colleagues that they're just banging their head on the wall with frustration about all this minutia they have to capture, which is getting in the way of doing things that really matter for the people who are coming to them for care. And so I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this well-intended policy, let's measure quality, got so twisted and weird that it's actually getting in the way of quality and dragging a lot of clinicians into misery. And so that's sort of that fascinating thing of what really matters to us and and how does it manifest in this really awkward, uh, unintended mess? And how could we change that? So that's that's where I'm coming from. And so it sounds like you're you're on a a similar path. And I, I absolutely agree with you. And at the risk of being critical, I think this whole push towards measuring quality is just an opportunity to duck. So instead of doing what would really address healthcare costs, they're making believe that if we penalize doctors for not doing the right things, we'll save money. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, though, this junk keeps us from doing the right thing, which is taking care of our patients. And of course, I'm, as I mentioned, a very strong supporter of Medicare for All, that if we are to remove the enormous amounts of overhead and profit that goes to the private insurance industries, we'll have more than enough money to not only introduce a Medicare for all, but a modified Medicare for all, which means we wouldn't even have the uh, Schedule D and the drug piece, and we wouldn't have the 20% gaps and 
the Medicare Advantage who are also cherry-picking and taking advantage of the consumer. We'd have the ability to pay for all of that. We just wouldn't have the private insurance for-profit industry involved. And I think then, I would hope then, without having to spend so much of your time and energy around administrative garbage, you know, as I'm sure you know from people you've spoken to, those in practice, they have to hire a handful of people just to handle insurance. Without having to do that, then maybe all they, they have to do is take care of patients, in which quality would inevitably improve, if that's the only thing they were focusing on. But again, that's my little soapbox. <laughs> so tell me what you get to do when you're not riding a bicycle across the country and planning your next ride. What do you do during your typical day job? I'm... Uh, very much involved in education here at the University of Arizona. When I started a little over 30 years ago, I was mainly focused on resident education. And as I've progressed over time, I'm now more focused on really undergraduate medical education. So I teach in the first couple of years of the medical school curriculum in a block that I lead called the Doctrine Patient Integrating the Art and Science of Medicine in which we teach our students to perform a medical interview, a physical exam, to learn to make an oral presentation, to do the write-ups, and most importantly, issues around clinical thinking and clinical reasoning. How do we go from a patient's symptom complaint to ultimately a diagnosis? So I'm just very fortunate to be able to spend so much of my time teaching, which is really what I like. That's well, that's a lot of fun. I think about all the opportunity there in helping you know, the future generations get beyond just the physiology, which of course is important, but there's so much more to people as we're talking to them, learning how to interact, learning how to understand that complexity. Use uh, st uh, standardized patients in your work? Absolutely. We've been doing that in Arizona long before I got here probably more than 40 years now, but I am, I direct our standardized patient program here in Tucson, and we've been using our standardized patients for undergraduate medical education, for graduate medical education. We've done some research projects with unannounced patients going into the community uh, to measure and test various things. We have a health sciences center here with nursing and pharmacy, so they come and do standardized patient activities as well. So. I'm really very pleased and proud of how much um, we do here in Tucson with standardized patients. And I have the sort of privilege to run that show. Why do you think it's important to have standardized patients? Why not just let the med students learn with real patients? You mean like we did? <laughs> um, <laughs> we shouldn't show our age. Um, I think the real <laughs> advantage of standardized patients is the opportunity to take risks in a safe environment. So before you're going to ask your patient about some sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which could be a very challenging area to talk about, we give the students an opportunity to practice in a much safer environment with trained patients. And then the next week or the week after, we'll go back to the hospital and we'll do those same questions. And similarly with physical exam maneuvers most notably, you know, breast, pelvic, and male GU exams, I think, are very important 
that when you go to see a patient and the patient looks at you and says, this is the first time you're doing that? Oh, no, no, not at all, <laughs> the student can say, because <laughs> no, they've had practice. Sure. But I just think it's more respectful to our patients that some of those difficult tasks we expect of our students to perform, they've actually had an opportunity to perform them before in a, an environment where they can make mistakes. That's a very nice framing. I, I've heard recently about some research with surgical residents where they're going through very challenging scenarios in an environment with standardized patients around, for instance, having a discussion about something that went wrong in the OR or uh, a, you know, a bad prognosis. And then having that discussion with a challenging family member or, you know, difficult dynamics. And in that, you know, I, I like that, you know, do this in a safe environment because you know you're going to be facing that tomorrow when you go out on the floors and seeing patients. And we're all human beings. There's no reason we should suspect that we are born with this skill set. We have to learn it. And if we're going to learn it, let's practice it first. And I've heard about those surgical um, encounters, and we try to do similar challenging communication scenarios, we call them. So as we wrap up, are there any last things you'd like to impart? It's still in the planning phases. However, I'm working with one of the documentarians from our film school here at the university, and we're hoping to create a documentary of the next trip in which we'll have the opportunity to actually engage even more deeply. The documentarian knowing about the importance to show a character in the film as more than just 15 minutes of questions and answers, but we'll have the opportunity perhaps to go back to their house, learn a little bit more about them, show the human side of who they are, as opposed to just the opinion that they had about Medicare for All or something like that. So I'm really excited. We're looking forward to it. need to do a little bit of fundraising, but I hope it'll come to pass. Interesting. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, we're going to provide a link to some of the videos from your last tour, and maybe that links to your upcoming one as well. Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. It was really a pleasure. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.